Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. It's titled Motivational Interviewing, the Key to Effective Conversations About Change. I'm Mark Graben. I'm the host and moderator for today's session. I'm a senior advisor for Kinexus. If you're not familiar with uh, Kinexus and our, our company and our software, I encourage you to check us out at kinexus.com. We're really uh, pleased to be joined today by our presenter. She's Paula Torres. She's a Senior Performance Improvement Manager at Health First. All right, so again, our presenter today is Paula Torres. She is a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt and Continuous Improvement Professional with 17 years of experience in healthcare. She's currently Senior Performance Improvement Manager at Health First in New York City. And prior to joining Health First, she was the Director of Supply Chain Transformation and Integration at NYU Langone Health. Um, that's where Paula and I first uh, crossed paths um, some years ago. And, uh, as a Lean Six Sigma practitioner and coach, uh, Paula has led over 40 cross-functional Kaizen or rapid improvement events, integrating change management concepts and adult learning theory into applied process improvement science. She is a native of Columbia. She received her BS in microbiology and an M, uh, master's of public, MPA, master's of public administration. Mm -hmm. Public administration, healthcare policy and management from NYU. <laughs> thank you, Mark. So thank you for finishing um, the introduction. And with that, Paola, I will give the stage to you. Thank you for presenting today. Well, thank you for thank you so much for having me um, here. I, I think this is a, a great opportunity to learn about motivational interviewing. So, uh, thanks uh, to for everybody for attending the session. I just want to start with a, a quick overview of our learning objectives. Um, at the end of the session, my expectation is that you become familiar with the practice and the spirit uh, of motivational interviewing. Uh, I also expect that uh, you're going to be able to identify uh, your customer's readiness for change based on some uh, key communication indicators that I'm going to describe during the session. And finally, I'm hoping that uh, you will learn some communication techniques that you might be able to apply uh, in your work environment to uh, help your, your customers resolve the ambivalence to change that we all uh, feel. Um, so before we move forward, these are my learning objectives, but I want to learn a little more about you. So let's take a moment uh, and think about the following. Uh, what motivated you to, to attend this webinar? Um, so please type uh, in the chat right now, uh, what do you want to get out of this webinar? What motivated you to attend the session? So I'm really curious. Uh, maybe you, you want to gain more support from, from your leadership. Um, you have a change initiative that you want to implement um, and you want to gain more buy-in or maybe you're simply curious about the topic. So uh, I love to learn a little more about your own objectives. I see knowledge. Um, I see better communication, practical examples, um, change team members. So those are all fantastic answers. Thank you. So if there's anything that I'm not able to, to cover uh, or that is not clear during the session, I just want to make sure that it's clear that I'm available. And if you want to reach out, please feel free to reach out. I want this to be something that provides value to you. 
Um, in so in my own words, a motivational interviewing is a targeted communication style or or a deliberate attempt that we make uh, to influence somebody's readiness uh, to change uh, based on on the conversations or, or or through the conversations that we have with our customers. Uh, the idea is that we want the customers to develop. Um, or to identify and develop intrinsic motivation. Uh, we want them to find uh, their own reasons and to identify their own, um, how their own values aligned with a particular change initiative so that they, they develop and they support that initiative um, based on their intrinsic motivation. And that's something that uh, only the customer knows. We can't really do that for them. Uh, and that is def- definitely the key to effective uh, change management, that intrinsic motivation is really the, the key to leading change effectively in an enterprise. Um, so uh, I think motivational interviewing has gained uh, significant momentum in, in, in recent years. Uh, and, uh, and I can say that my hypothesis is that uh, there is a need now, and especially in the U.S., uh, to, you know, we went through a transition in the industry from a traditional fee-for-service payment system, a, a payment system that rewards volume, to a payment system that now rewards healthcare outcomes. Um, so really, we, we need to do more than just uh, provide medicine or treatment to our patients, right? We need to enable uh, them and we need to help them develop healthy behaviors. And to do this, uh, we need to kind of change how we practice uh, medicine in a certain way. Uh, and motivational interviewing, it's uh, an evidence-based proven framework used in, in therapy, using behavioral uh, therapy to that, that, that enables uh, behavioral change. It's, it's proven to be very effective. Um, psychologists have identified that it's a methodology that is um, tremendously effective to help people uh, embrace new behaviors. Um, and I think that's also why uh, motivational interviewing, it's now being embraced uh, by care managers, by nurse practitioners, uh, by other uh, clinical care providers that also need to uh, help uh, um, patients and help uh, the members perhaps of a helpline develop uh, new uh, behaviors, you know, healthy behaviors, behaviors that that support the healthcare outcomes that are, are typically the the metric that providers um, are, are normally measure on. Um, and I've also noticed that um, the process improvement field has identified the need to integrate uh, the the change management principles, including motivational interviewing in, in our practice. Um, so there is here is an there's an observe from like the, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, that describes motivational interviewing as a key piece of, of managing the implementation of uh, the outcomes of a Kaizen or a process improvement initiative. Uh, oftentimes we hear consultants uh, complain about the fact that it didn't sustain. Uh, and, and perhaps the answer to that is the fact that uh, the, the team members really never develop intrinsic motivation, really embraced uh, uh, the changes uh, that came out of the of the Kaizen or came out of, uh, of the initiative um, through, through the fullest. Uh, so I think those two data points are, are not a, a coincidence. <laughs> uh, and, and I hope that you guys find this, this topic exciting. Uh, there's definitely momentum. So I'm going to cover these three topics. I'm going to start with uh, a little bit about behavioral change. So set the tone uh, and really uh 
kind of connect that to to behavioral uh, sorry to motivational interviewing and then I'll talk about motivational interviewing in detail and then we'll do the application piece um, so here is uh, the stages of change. Um, this is the, the theory that Dr. Prochanska and Di Clementi uh, described in the 1970s. Um, and the idea is that we used to think about change as uh, almost that something that happens or takes place overnight, almost like you turn on a, a switch and you know all of a sudden you just quit smoking. But in reality, change is a process, and we need to go through all these phases uh, in order to um, to really get to the action stage, in order to really develop at the end uh, a new habit. Um, and oftentimes what happens is that there is a misalignment between what we want our customers to do, right? And also, and where they are in the change process. Uh, so our expectation is action when they're behind in the change process, when they're not even close to, to the preparation of action stage. Um, so since we need to go to all these uh, four stages, we need to go from pre-contemplation to contemplation, to preparation and action. Um, if we start prescribing or telling people what to do, uh, assuming that they're in the action phase, uh, our expectations are not in alignment with, with what the person is actually ready to, to, to do. Um, an example from, like, from the clinical setting is a patient goes to see a primary care provider. The provider uh, prescribes cholesterol medicine and also behavioral change. So also a healthy diet and, and exercise. Um, the patient might say, I love red meat. Everybody in my family eats red meat. We, we live until, we all live until 90. And um, and I don't think this is this is something that I need to do now. So they're in, in pre-contemplation, not even aware uh, that their diet has an impact in, in their overall health. Um, so this also happens in, in an enterprise, right? We sometimes have conversations with managers and they might say, uh, I created this standard operating procedure and my staff is not implementing anything. And I'm always, uh, I always find it really interesting because, <laughs> so you created the, the SOP or the standard operating procedure because you probably went through a change process on your own, right? You identified that there was an issue, there was a need to have uh, standard work, then you created the, the, the SOP and you went through all this, you know, pre-contemplation, right? Now aware of the issue, now I take action. Um, but your staff is not, has not gone through the same process. So they're behind. They're, some of them are going to be in pre-contemplation. Some of them might be in contemplation. So the expectation that they would embrace that uh, is really not, not feasible. So that's, that, to me, is like one of the most, um, uh, the, one of the biggest aha moments that I have had as I started learning about behavioral change and specifically motivational interviewing. So the idea is that we want to use motivational interviewing in those early stages, right? In the pre-contemplation and contemplation so that when we get to the action, to the preparation and action phase, our um, customers are aligned with what we want them to do. 
So that's that's essential. This is like if you turn on the electronic health record tomorrow, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure you're going to have uh, a lot of people are, go are going to to not be happy about it, right? So you have to give them time to go through that process. Change is a process. Um, the other two concepts that are are important and are connected to motivational interviewing are the concept of uh, the writing reflex and the concept of ambivalence to change. Um, if we go back to the previous slide, we have the pre-contemplation when we're not aware of the change to contemplation uh, where we're now aware, but at the same time, we're not ready to take action. Uh, and, and the concept of ambivalence to change is that as we think about embracing a new habit or, or developing a new habit, uh, we experience these yes and no um, kind of voices or feelings in our head, right? Reasons to support the change in motivational interviewing that's uh, called change talk, and then reasons to not do it, sustain talk. So it's like you have the two voices in your head, yes, I want to do this, no, I don't want to do it. Uh, that is the, the that ambivalence to change. Um, and then the, I'm going to illustrate the, the concept of the writing reflex uh, with an example. Since uh, the pandemic started, I have been wanting to wake up at you know, 7 a.m. in the morning and go for a run because I read that exercising in the morning is really good for you. So uh, I want to build that new habit. I tend to exercise in the afternoon and it interrupts my sleep schedule sometimes. Um, and I haven't been able to do it. And I was having a conversation with a, with a friend and I, I was sharing this um, this with her. Like I really want to exercise in the morning, but I, I fail and I'm not being able to do it. And then she said to me, well, you know, it's, it's simple. Like one thing that you can do is set up an alarm and uh, at 7.30 that says run, you know? <laughs> and, and then that's your reminder. If you wake up at 6 a.m., then at seven, you know that you, you need to be uh, exercising. Uh, you need to go for a run. Um, and, and as she was, you know, telling me what to do with good intentions, I just started feeling, you know, not very comfortable with the conversation. And I, I just started thinking about it. I was like, do I really need to exercise in the morning? So she basically activated that other voice in my head of, no, I don't need to do these. Um, and this is uh, foundation, foundational to motivational interviewing is that when we tell people what to do, that writing reflex that we all have, uh, and especially when you're a consultant or when you're a counselor, when you are um, a clinical practitioner, uh, sometimes hinders that uh, change process. Because instead of like helping people express uh, that that change talk, you know, which is what is really going to help them move to the action phase, we help them express uh, the other side of the coin, the sustained talk. Uh, so the, the goal here is that we want people to uh, express change talk because people tend to implement or do what they hear them say, or some, themselves say. So that's the, that's the piece. We want them to he hear them say uh, what we want them to do, but we don't want to be telling them to do it. So um, that's that's. I think to me that was also uh, really interesting. Um, so that's the idea. We want to help our customers resolve their ambivalence. We want to use motivational interviewing to do that. Um, and if we think about the life cycle of a project, uh, the end result is always going to be action, right? We want people to 
document perhaps something in an EMR system in a different way. We want them to implement a new nomenclature. So we want to ensure that we resolve that ambivalence, that our customers resolve that ambivalence during all the interactions of, uh, of a particular project or an initiative so that when we go to the action phase, they're ready and, and you know we can have um, success. Um, and so here I do want to uh, pause maybe if there's any any questions. I, I see the chat going, uh, Mark. I don't know. I have not had time to look at it. If there's anything that people uh, questions that they might have, I think I could address them also quickly. Well, there have been a lot of comments about why people are attending uh, today. There aren't any questions that okay. come in okay. so far. Okay. All right. So then that's good. Thank you. Okay. So now let's take a moment and, and think about this. Um, what did you discuss during the last meeting that you had with your customers or, or with a client? Um, and also, let's think about this. Would Had you changed uh, or would that meeting have been uh, completely different if this was a customer or a, cli or a client that um, was told to work with you versus a customer or a client that openly reach out to you, that really, you know, identified you as the person that he wanted to work with. Uh, so maybe just take a second and, and, and type in the chat first, um, what did you discuss during your last meeting with a customer or, or client? So I'm curious to, to kind of um, learn a little more about that. And then, um, I don't see, so I think, and then maybe just, let me know if anything changed, right? If if you would uh, change your approach, if you uh, your customer or your client was told to work with you instead of like openly reaching out to you. So let's see, what do we see? Progress on projects. Um, um, yeah. We encountered a second uh, version regularly, forensic programs, so some topics. Um, sales. And so what about the second question? I'm curious. So maybe you can say yes or no. Um, how, do you think there's any difference between uh, an interaction with that particular customer when you compare uh, a customer that is openly or that reach out to you because they wanted to work with you versus a customer that was told to engage with you? So do you see a difference? Yes or no? I'm just curious about uh, what everybody has to say about that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's really important. And that's, that's sometimes um, a, a piece that it's, it's not always clear to us, right? If there was, if there was intrinsic motivation to begin with, and, and here is where MI is also uh, very helpful because it's going to provide a roadmap to really help the, the people that are in that pre-contemplation stage. Anybody who is told to do something, to work with you, uh, this is really going to provide uh, a framework for you to, to get, gain their support, gain their, their buy-in and, and, and create good engagement because they're not even engaged. Uh, most of the change management theories uh, start with the engagement phase. So I think that's, that's super um, uh, essential here. 
So I don't want to oversimplify complexity. And as I go, as, as I take a, we take a deeper dive into the motivational interview and concept, um, I want to make sure that I highlight that even though we're just going to discuss here the MI process and then some of the interviewing skills, the uh, open-ending questions, affirmations, um, summaries, reflections, uh, there are other elements that uh, are relevant to the MI framework. And I think to, to really do it well, it's also a cohesive framework. We can't just take just one piece and assume that it's going to work. Uh, so the interviewing skills work, but the, the principles and the attitudes or the spirit of motivational interviewing is essential. So it's really about collaboration, acceptance, um, partnership, empathy, right? So if we think about asking open-ended questions, if we don't do it with the that empathetic spirit uh, with really wanting to to learn more and it, if it doesn't come uh, from a place of acceptance and empathy I don't think it will lead the same results so I think that's that's really important because sometimes we we take one piece and we think that it might work like might be able to just apply it uh, but in reality it's 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 a cohesive framework um, so this is the MI process. And basically, here are the, the four stages that um, you go through as you have an interaction with a customer or with a client, just like in a, in a, in a project. Um, there is an initial engagement state. Uh, and I go back to my, my first question. Uh, is, is there a difference between a customer that uh, engaged you openly versus a customer that didn't, right? Uh, the engagement phase is certainly going to be longer if the customer did not reach out to you uh, to begin with and it was told to work uh, with you. Uh, then there is the focusing phase. Then we go into evoking and planning. And, and there are different uh, questions that we want to answer for the customer on each phase. So the idea is that... Um, Everybody progresses through the phases, right? And planning leads to action and behavioral change. But we could also go back, right? Instead of like moving forward, we could go from uh, focusing back to engaging. Uh, and I'm sure you have experienced this in the interactions with your customers uh, at work, right? Uh, sometimes it feels like we're moving forward and then something happened and we, we go backwards. Um, so the, the goal is to... Um, use this as an anchor uh, for all the interactions that we have with our customers. Uh, and also to think about uh, the things that we can do to promote their movement from one phase to another, and also the things that we shouldn't do or the, the messaging that might hinder their ability to move from one phase to another. So um, I think that's, that's key. Um, the other piece is um, the, the interviewing skills that, that we're going to use in the MI uh, methodology. So we, we use open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries. Um, all of these are interviewing skills that are not uh, unique to, to, to motivational interviewing. What is really unique is how they are framed. And I, I really like this table. This is from a Canadian uh, neonatologist uh, that uses, uh, applies motivational interviewing in his practice to uh, promote uh, vaccination. And, and 
what I think is is valuable here is that it, it really explains um, what makes uh, this this interviewing skills unique in in MI. It's it's the interviewing skill within the objective or within the context of a particular objective that you want to achieve. Uh, so, for example, if we think about uh, reflective listening. Uh, which is uh, a very common and well-used coaching and facilitation uh, interviewing skill. Um, within the context of MI, right, it's about highlighting uh, on, on the, the discrepancy, highlighting on, you know, you're saying that you don't want to do this, right, or you're saying that you uh, are vaccinations are something that you're concerned about. But, but what's really that is positive about that, like you're doing it because, you want to, or you're concerned about the safety of your kids. Uh, so it's, it's highlighting uh, the, the positive, right? Uh, and the other, the, another piece, for example, in affirmations, right? You're, you're affirming, but you're affirming with, with an, uh, a goal. And the goal is to help that person feel uh, empowered. So the affirmations have that, that purpose, right? Like you want to make sure that they feel uh, that they can do something. Right. So there is a purpose. So it's, it's basically uh, the skills, but you use the interviewing skills with a particular purpose, with a particular goal uh, within the MI framework. Um, and, and the idea is that as we use the skills, we want to tilt that balance from that, no, I don't want to do this, right, to that to the positive side, to, to, to more change talk. Uh, until people would develop intrinsic motivation and they'll say, yes, I do want to do this uh, because whatever reason. So they'll, they'll identify that. So the skills will enable, the interviewing skills will enable that. Uh, and we're just uh, promoting that through the interactions that we have with the customers. Uh, I don't know. So now we're ready for a couple of questions. I don't know if anybody has uh, any questions so far. So ready to take any, any questions, Mark. We don't have any questions submitted so far, but one question that we uh, maybe just to ask, um, maybe there's a quick answer. How did you first learn about motivational interviewing, Paula? Um, so <laughs> I think I told this story before, but I, I actually threw Mark Graven. So Mark came to, to NYU a while ago and, and uh, I was trying to, to find the best way to be a more effective change agent in, in the organization. Um, he brought up MI. Uh, but at that point, I remember when we had the conversation, I, I didn't think it was, or there was anything unique about it. It sounded to me like, uh, another facilitation or another coaching kind of methodology that that I really already had enough training in in change management in facilitation skills and coaching it just didn't feel to me like uh, there was something new um I was resistant to change I was not aware Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but then I got to a point in which uh, most of the work that we did in that organization was uh, with customers that really wanted to work with us. So I, I really, we, we have learned that it was important to, to have that true engagement from the beginning. I was in a situation in which I had to work with um, a group of leaders that really did not uh, openly re requested the, the, the support of a lean consultant. And the, that was kind of my my aha moment to realize that maybe there is something else and maybe there is uh, another set of skills or, or 
or maybe I could enhance my current facilitation skills. And this is when um, I decided to look into motivational interviewing. I found a, a course, then I took the course. Um, it was a two-day course and I've been taking, you can you can go into the motivational interviewing network of practitioners and I've been taking um, several online courses and I also meet with a coach um, every two weeks uh, to, to practice the, the the skills and then to to really because it's, it's really a different way of, of communicating uh, and and to to refine my MI um, skills with her. So it's been almost like I think over two years that I have been um, practicing. So. Yeah. So there's one other uh, question here, and if you want to hold it till the end, um, let me know. But I think it's an important question. How would motivational interviewing help? with a patient who adamantly does not want to wear a mask or get a vaccine? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So one of the things that motivational interviewing highlights is that we don't want to be antagonistic. So we want to approach anything with um, with empathy and with the, the framework or the mindset of understanding. So if somebody doesn't want to wear a mask, uh, the only thing that we can do is to understand why, right? Uh, what what are the concerns? Like, uh, what makes you think, or what's um, what are the? I, I don't want to say reasons, right? But what what are some of the the the, the issues, or what, what what's leading you to not wanting to wear a mask? So we just want to approach it with a learning mindset. We don't really know why, right? So from from our perspective, wearing a mask is the most. Um, and we understand, or from my perspective, I, we under, we've gone through a process of understanding its value. We want to understand what is the, the thinking behind the fact that that person does not wear a mask. And, and it goes, it's the same thing with vaccinations, right? Uh, what this Canadian doctor uh, was saying is that um, you, you want to start ahead of the game. Like you don't want to ask somebody to vaccinate their kids right now and, and start kind of promoting that. You want to start understanding what are the reasons. Then you could provide information about it uh, and slowly build to that. So a lot of it is for us, we were asked to wear a mask, right, overnight. So it's like the change, everybody was at different stages. Uh, so the change process is not the same. But my answer to that is we want to always start with understanding what is the reasons or what is the, the thinking behind not doing something and take it with empathy, not judgmental. So it's not good or bad one side or the other, at least from the AMI perspective. Yeah, uh, I'll just add a thought. Like if your goal is to help somebody change, you have to start from that place of respect and empathy. And one word that comes to mind, you mentioned earlier the word ambivalence that gets used in motivational interviewing, where people will often articulate they have reasons to get motivated, and to them, they have reasons not to. And so there are some, so we want to help people kind of, you know, talk through the motivation instead of just telling them, well, you need to go get vaccinated because then they'll get defensive and, exactly. we're not, and then we're not helping them. Exactly. And, and I will talk about that in a second, right? So any kind of label that we use, um, you know, not doing this is bad or when you're judgmental, it actually hinders the, the process. Right. Um, so that is that whole thing that when I, when I practice in my, 
it's a whole, it's a different mindset because you clearly see things in a certain way. Like if we think about uh, process improvement practitioners, it's, it's sometimes really painful because <laughs> you kind of see the light clearly at the end of the tunnel, but it's really about that um, that slide that I, I showed uh, in the middle about the where people are in the change process and where you are and what your expectations are. They are in a different place and what you need to do is carry them through so that they do what we expect them to do. Hope that, <laughs> yeah. any other questions or we're good? Um, no, I think um, go ahead and uh, move into the case studies, sure. Yeah, so now I'm going to, um, I think I want to try to make it as practical as possible. So we're going to go into some of the, the case studies. Um, these are process improvement initiatives that I facilitated in, in different organizations. Um, and I, I hope that you guys kind of see the, the practical side of this uh, through, the, through the cases. So the, the first case study that I'm going to, to highlight is a case study that highlights the engagement process, uh, which is the first uh, step in the, in the MI process, right? Um, so I wanna ask you a few questions or I wanna ask you a question. So take a moment and think about the following. Uh, when was the, or where were you the first time that you met your in-laws? And I just want, when I, I, when I, I want you guys to imagine yourselves, like the first time you, you met your in-laws, um, where were you? Were you at their house? Were, were you at a restaurant? Just quickly type in the chat. Um, let's see what answers. At their home. Yeah, so most people are saying that at their home. Um, so then the next question is, uh, did you ask all the questions that you had in mind? Right? Did you openly ask everything that you wanted to know and, and maybe type in the chat, yes, no? Most people said no. Yeah, so that I think that is really the key um, through that engagement phase. So almost like you're walking this fine line uh, between learning as much as possible, right? To to build that relationship, but also not asking too much so that you might hinder that relationship or you might hinder the process of building that relationship. Um, and my example, uh, my case study for, for the engagement phase is from a, an experience that I had uh, in the, the Department of Supply Chain. Uh, we were a couple of process improvement practitioners where uh, we were told to go and, and find the defects and find uh, reasons why the nurses didn't have what they needed to, to do their job. Um, and so this was basically a, a push, you know, somebody saying, go work with this, the, this department. Um, and as we initiated, started building the relationship uh, with the leaders in, in that department, I think we, most of us missed the point, like they were not even in, in contemplation. They were in pre-contemplation. There was no awareness about the need to work uh, with uh, our department to do anything. Like there was no, uh, they really had no awareness of some of the issues that they had. Um, so we we did a lot of this relationship building and, and trust building, which is what is essential in the, the, the first phase. But we also did a lot of things that, that kind of uh, hinder uh, the, the progress from engagement to the next phase. 
Um, and so what you want to do is in how can you use emotion and motivational interviewing in an effective uh, manner to really build engagement? Um, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, as, as we would have meetings, we will hear statements like, we already worked with that consultant last year and, and nothing changed. Uh, or we'll hear things like, oh, a Kaizen um, takes uh, four days and, and at the end there, there are no results. Uh, so if you become antagonistic and you say, well, yes, maybe we didn't have results here, but like in the clinical departments, we had all kinds of really good results and positive results. That's not going to be helpful. If you start also selling um, all the results and outcomes of previous uh, events, that's also not going to be helpful. Um, what you want to do is really, again, create that connection and use, for example, a reflection uh, I understand that it must be tremendously difficult to work with that department or to work with that consultant and not get the results that you want. Uh, but uh, I know that what you really care at the end of the day is that the, the clinical care team gets what they need. Um, so you are identifying that positive piece, right? You're identifying that connection. So you're not focusing on the fact that the consultants are bad. Forget about that. The overall goal here is um, to highlight that they do want to do their best and they want to ensure that the clinical care team has what they need. Uh, and that is kind of the, the kind of um, communication style that you want to have and, and, and that is going to really enable positive relationship building when you have somebody who's not in pre-engagement, uh, who's in pre-engagement, who's not in, in an engagement phase. The other piece is that um, affirmations are really important here too. A lot of times when, when people are not uh, engaged, they're, they're not engaged because the reasons behind that. So it could be that they want to retain control. And MI actually goes in through an entire list of reasons. Uh, it could be that it's it's all about this is the only thing that I can control, uh, wearing or not wearing a mask. Uh, it could be that you have tried multiple things and none of them have worked. And so now you've really lost your, your sense of self-efficacy. So affirmations are helpful because it, it'll restore, they'll restore autonomy and it'll empower the client. So you want to um, do things and say things like, you manage a really complex operation, right? Uh, we can't really run a, a hospital without you. I, I think is there's one thing that is tremendously helpful and easy to implement is affirmations uh, as you build relationships with your customers. Uh, and it has very positive results. A lot of people, in, especially in the healthcare industry, uh, they they go every day with the intention of doing their best, um, and they get a lot of, of um, barriers, right? So, you know, if somebody comes in to tell them that they need to do something else in a, in a different way, it's like, this is the last thing you want to hear. Uh, so affirmations kind of help people feel empowered and, and also restore uh, the, the autonomy. So we did a little bit of that, but I think um, we could have done more of that, of, the, of that, of the affirmations. And some things to avoid, and I think I just men I mentioned this um, in the during the first half, uh, the the premature focus trap, like labeling uh, labeling things, right? And uh, the premature focus trap and the label trap are, are one is a, 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 a kind of like a, a more a focused component of, of the larger one. So the, the premature focus trap is when you start saying, well, this is about um, uh, scheduling or this is about alcoholism. So it's like you're making already an assessment 
too too quickly, right? And then you start labeling, right? Like so, it's really about uh, the fact that they're uh, they don't really want to do more, right? Uh, so those two things are connected, you know, a negative label and then uh, establishing or diagnosing the problem too soon. Uh, even if it's clear to you that it's about X, Y, and Z, you don't want to do that at the beginning. You want to prevent that. And you also don't want to use any language that uh, it's antagonistic or, or negative. Uh, and then also behaving like an expert, right? Having a list of things that you are uh, kind of checking for. And do you have this? Do you have this other thing? Do you have the data that I need for this? Do you have the scorecard? Do you have, um, how do you quantify this? Uh, not in the in the early stages, uh, that would really hinder your your ability to move to the next phases. And especially if if they're not even uh, engaged, if they're not openly asking uh, for the support, um, that would definitely um, set you back. So just just a few things to to consider. Um, the next phase within the, the AMI process, if your engagement phase goes well and, and you're able to build uh, that trust and that relationship is there, uh, it's the focusing phase. And, and sometimes you actually almost start in the focusing phase with some of the, the interactions that you have. Like people are already, uh, the engagement phase is already, already took place, right? Um, so that, that's also important to understand what, where the customer is. The customer might be pretty much ready to just focus and you don't need to do a, as much of the relationship building in that case um, be, because they're, they're ready to just narrow the scope of the, of the project. Um, so now let's take a moment and think about this question. Um, you just get assigned a, a new project and, and things are really busy at work. And, and your spouse or, or partner wants you to take time off and, and uh, your spouse is asking you all of a sudden, um, if you uh, can take time off, right? So what would you say to that? What would, what would be your answer? Yes, I can do it, not, not now. Like, what would you say? I'm curious to see what people have to say. Let's see. No, my job is a priority. Yeah, so within the focus phase, I think something that is really important is to ensure that you are ready to, to really make a determination, to really focus or to really narrow the scope uh, of the issue that you're trying to address. Uh, if, if you try to do that too early, you might get a response like, no, not now, uh, or no, we can discuss this problem right now. And that often happens when you're working with a, a project uh, team or a process improvement team, uh, and you try to bring something up that they're not ready uh, to, to discuss yet. Um, they're still just uh, in the engagement phase, and they're really not even close to identifying what the intervention or what the problem needs to be. So I think that's very important. Um, so here's an example of uh, a case study that uh, I did for the accounts payable uh, department, a case that I did for, for the accounts payable department. Here they were uh, really ready to to um, to move forward. So they were basically in the focus phase. Um, the, the director reached out to the department, to the uh, LinkedIn department, and indicated that lots of their processes were manual. They were ready to automate everything, um, and they wanted some support. So there's very little need here for for engagement, right? You can you can definitely do some of that. Uh, but they're ready for, for you to go in and just start discussing the objectives of, of the project uh, and then just identifying uh, basically what elements do you need to focus on. Um, 
here you still want to ensure that you're not that that you still uh, that you still leave the autonomy on the customer that you're not really uh, pushing too much for what you think the objective or the metric or the target should be. I think that's something that uh, we tend to to do, especially during the focus phase. Uh, it's, it's easy to get into. It should be this uh, this particular target, or it should be this particular uh, objective or metric, um, since they seem so ready. Um, so, what what are some of the the indicators uh, of somebody who's already in the focus phase? You you'll hear them say things like, uh, "We want to ensure our members' account balance is accurate, and also that we decrease the time that it takes." Like they want all these things, and they'll provide a list of all the things that they want. Um, and then sometimes you might hear them say things like, but I don't know where to start, right? Um, there are a couple of things that you can do in MI here to then continue to progress to the next phase. Uh, one is open-ended questions, right? So let's talk about more in detail about some of the things that you want to do. Uh, and then you can also use reflections, right? But I think the most important here is what I'm going to highlight in the next slide, uh, which is this tool called uh, Elicit Provide Elicit. So uh, when somebody clearly indicates something like, I don't know where to start, or I don't know you know what to do first, um, here is where you can provide opinions and provide your expertise, but you can still do it in a way in which you still um, maintain the autonomy and, and ensuring that the, the customer still maintains uh, autonomy. Um, so for example, and I use this a lot uh, at work, uh, you could say something like, would it be okay to share with you how I addressed this issue before? Uh, and then you provide your advice. Um, you know, all your processes are connected. So we need to really kind of identify the triggers at the beginning and endpoint. Uh, and then once we do that, then we can uh, prioritize them and identify where we need to, to start and, and focus on or which, which process needs to be tackled first. And then you can say, what are your thoughts about this approach? And so you go back and give them the opportunity to really respond so that they, they, they have autonomy and it's still on them um, to say, yes, I want to do this. No, I, I don't want to do this. So uh, I think this is a, a good way. Uh, it's only useful if they're ready and they're in that phase. Um, if you start providing uh, opinions or asking for permission, right? Would it be okay to share too early? That could also hinder your, your progress. Um, so that's that's very useful. I, I definitely value that method or that technique, uh, technique at work uh, a lot. Um, Again, things to not do, the right reflex, and when you're in the focus phase, it's really easy to tell people what to do. Uh, it just feels like they're ready, and so you certainly don't want to do that. Every time I do it, it backfires. Like <laughs> they, they actually respond with a, um, no, I don't think that's, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I think I, I probably provided uh, too much um, direct advice. So uh, they, they also don't want to feel like, they're just another thing that you're completed or that you are, uh, yeah, completed in your checklist, right? That you're just really focused on the steps that you need to follow, uh, but not on what they, they, they need, right? So nobody likes to feel like you're just another task. Um, 
people want to feel like that you care about them. And so that's that's really important. And especially when you get to this piece, when you're refining uh, the scope of, of a project, like you get to like, okay, I, we need to do this and then this other thing. So uh, it, it tends to, to feel like you're just moving forward with the phases that you have in your framework to do process improvement work, but it's really not about, are you, are you really helping them? Are you really helping me get to where I need to get? Um, and also you don't want to take control. So if people, if you're working with a team or if you're having a conversation with your staff and they're uh, brainstorming about something, uh, let them brainstorm. Let them go through that process of, of have that conversation because that's part of the change process for them. Uh, and that has value. And sometimes you want to go in and, and kind of take control and say, okay, let's just narrow it down, right? Um, but that actually would hinder also the, the ability to move to the next phase. Um, the next phase within the MI process is the evoking phase. And, and you see or you, you typically experience uh, this phase in an interaction with a customer uh, when you are either helping, helping, them, helping them develop a future state or um, when you are helping them come up with interventions or if, if this is part of a PDCA cycle that you're running or uh, a change initiative, uh, they're basically in the evoking phase. So they're about to come up with something, some actions uh, that are going to be the end result of your initiative. So, so now let's take a moment and let's think about the following. Do you believe you can influence your client's readiness for change? Is there, is there, uh, what would be the answer to that? Yes or no? I'm curious to hear what people have to say. Let's see. Sorry to hear there's a few no responses. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know this is a polarizing question. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to see 50-50. Yeah, I almost see a 50-50, right? Yeah, so um, MI uh, operates under the assumption that you can influence your customers' readiness for change. Uh, but in reality, we're not... Uh, we don't have unlimited time. So there are barriers and, and there are other um, elements in an organization that really hinder our ability to, to do this, right? Uh, we're not therapists, but, but really the assumption is that if we have unlimited time and we gain all the MI skills and apply the framework, we could really enable and influence somebody's uh, readiness to embrace change. So I think that's that's a very interesting assumption. Um, this last case study, it's a, um, a case study from the emergency department. Uh, we were doing a, a Kaizen event. And uh, on the third day of the Kaizen event, when we were about to come up with the, the new, um, the future state, implement some of the, the changes that we, or design some of the changes that we wanted to, to implement uh, moving forward, um, I would hear things like, well, we would like to do this but, um, this, this but statement, which is what is uh, typical of the evoking phase. It's like, you're already engaged, you, you're already focused the, on the, the issue that you want to address. Now you're ready to come up with the interventions, right? So you're almost there. 
And this is where you're going to hear a lot of change talk. Uh, and there is this is going to present a, an opportunity to really uh, use MI to reinforce that change talk, to hear people say more of that positive language that we want them to express before we get to the action phase. Um, so what are some of the things that help here? Um, we, we want to focus on the why. Why do we want to do this? And we also want to avoid arguing or telling. And uh, sometimes... If you're working with a team, if you have, um, if you're managing um, a department and you're about to come up with actions and you want them to come up um, with something specific, um, then it might feel like you're arguing for something. Um, and so that that's something that you want to avoid. It's not about uh, that. Um, so the, the uh, you know, the, the motivational interview and the way that we can communicate and, and the way that we promote change talk is really using uh, this, this framework. Like, what are some of the, the things that we can do as we ask questions, as we communicate? Uh, what are we trying to do? Um, so we want to try to stimulate desire. Uh, we want to try to ensure that people feel that like they can do something. Um, we want to reinforce the reasons, like why why should you do this, uh, and the need to do it. So they use this uh, acronym of darn cats, and I'm going to talk about the darn piece first. But it's basically the content of that of the communication, the messaging around the communication. Uh, it's uh, it's around these these four elements, right? Um, so, for example, if we go back to the emergency department case study, if we think about uh, desire, like what services do you envision providing uh, five years from now? So uh, we ended up doing a um, uh, vision statement and and really helping them see what what it, what's the future for them? What do, what do they want to achieve five years from now? What do you want to go? Uh, so desire will promote um, action, right? So we want to uh, identify that desire, help them identify that desire. Then ability is, for example, if you want to call a patient specialist, how much time would it take, right? Can you actually do it? So you want to help them envision that they can actually do that. Um, so um, this is key because sometimes you can see that you can do something. And so kind of creating that, um, uh, the conditions for people to em envision in doing something um, enables change. You know, you, you, you sometimes we're limited what, by what we think we can do. Uh, then reasons, for, uh, reasons is, an, is another piece. Like uh, what are some of the advantages? Like why do you want to do something? What are some of the reasons to call uh, uh, the providers, right? So what are the uh, advantages that um, the, the clinical care team can have if you do these? Um, and the need, how important is for you as a, as a nurse uh, uh, to, to, to talk with the patient specialist? Like is there a need to do this? Um, so those four things, they know the answers, right? Like the only thing that we can do is ask the questions. Uh, and as they go through the process of thinking about the answers, uh, eventually that should lead to, to action. And that's actually what happened in that, that Kaizen session as well. Um, uh, some things to avoid that could hinder progress, and I, I, I'm actually guilty of, of some of this, um, taking sides, saying, for example, I, I really wanted them to, to implement that, that change, right, to do some of the 
the coordination of care activities, um, saying things like, well, if we do this, we can also bring in more revenue for the hospital because then the, the, the patients will remain in our network. Um, and you're basically taking sides. You're basically saying we should do this because uh, I think there's a, a reason, right? Like I have a, a particular motivation to, to promote that, that particular intervention or change initiative. That, that doesn't work, right? So you, you want to ensure that they're the ones who, who really need to identify the reason to do something. So it's not about what I think they should be doing. Um, and then asking judgmental questions. Um, when I was with that particular Kaizen event, I remember um, highlighting a story in which I um, mentioned how difficult it was to uh, go to the hospital and I, I was about to deliver uh, my son and some of the, the medical records that they needed to have were not there, right? So if you have coordination of care activities, then you could prevent that. Uh, but that sounded judgmental. So uh, the instead of like promoting uh, a positive reaction, it was there was I immediately had a negative reaction, even though that was not the intention. So nothing, anything that sounds judgmental, it's going to hinder progress. Yes. I apologize. We are almost out of time, so maybe if you can just touch on planning very quickly. I don't know if we. I don't think we. You know, uh, yeah. So the planning phase, um, I think, and actually planning phase is just really no, uh, not a lot to it, right? Because once you progress all the way from all the different stages, planning phase is downscale, downhill, right? So it's literally promoting um, commitment, activation, and taking steps. If you think about building an action plan for a project, that's what you're already doing. And, and you're already using motivational interviewing there. So it's like, you know, how do we do these? What are the next steps? Uh, we're ready to, to run the pilot. So how do we run the pilot? Who's going to do what, right? So it's just kind of the going through the, the steps that we typically go when we're ready to just move forward with the change. So uh, I think that's something that we could, we could definitely do. I, I think that's it. So if anybody has any questions, um, I mean, the final takeaway here is, we want to help people resolve that ambivalence to change. Um, and we want to use motivational interviewing as a tool to do that. And uh, when we do that effectively, we're able to implement change initiatives with, without you know, very little pushback. So that's really the key to project success and to um, effective change management in an organization. That's it. Okay. Um, so we might be able to, you know, there were a handful of questions. Um, maybe there's an opportunity to follow up with people via email or uh, come yeah, up with another right. way of sharing some of those questions. So um, thank you, Paula. Um, this is such a rich topic. So it's it's difficult to um, to cover in uh, a short time here. Um, but I just want to make a couple announcements. Um, if you can advance it, please. Um, upcoming webinars, if you are a Kinex's customer, the next training team office hours is going to be held on August 12th. You can register for that at kinexus.com slash webinars. The next presentation webinar um, is going to be on August 10th, 1 o'clock Eastern. Um, Adam Lawrence talking about concepts from his book called The Wheel of Sustainability. That webinar is open to everybody, and the registration for that should be open later today or uh, at the latest tomorrow. I want to tell you about a few other resources. We have our uh, webinar library. Let me if you can advance up real quick. 
Um, all our past webinars are in the library at kinexus.com slash webinars. The recording of this one will also reside there and on our YouTube channel. Um, we have a blog at blog.kinexus.com. And then the final thing is uh, our podcast. If you can advance it, please. Um, the audio of today's session will be available in the podcast feed, kinexus.com slash podcast. So um, maybe if you just want to put on the last Q&A slide um, with your con that shows your contact info, Paula. A um, lot of comments here. Uh, great presentation. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this information. I learned a lot. This is a fascinating topic. Really like your approach to change. Um, Scott also says, thank you very much. Fantastic session uh, from Lily. Um, so, uh, Paula, is there anything else that, that you'd like to add as a, a final thought to end on here today? Um, I mean, I, I think um, we have an opportunity right now to redesign how we do, how we work, and how we think about work in general. Um, but to be able to do that, we, we really need to be able to be good change agents and to to really help people change, I think motivational interviewing provide uh, a, a good framework to do that and to have conversations with people about change in an effective way. Um, so I, I would say that's my final comment is to think about it as if we want to rebuild the future, right? After everything that we've gone through with, with this virus, um, we need to be able to really understand how can we help people um, go through the change process. And, and this is a methodology that would help us do that. Um, so just take the, the elements of it that, uh, that you think are valuable and use them to, to be an effective change agent in your organization. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you very much, uh, Paula. Our, our presenter today has been Paula Torres. Really want to thank you for um, helping introduce people to this important topic or help. You know, I, get, uh, you know the, I think every time, you know, I've heard many presentations about this. I've, I've tried to practice it and teach it. And every time I hear somebody else, um, including yourself here today, presenting it, it gives me more food for thought as we're trying to help people through change. So again, thank you. Paula, thank you everybody for attending today and we'll hope to see you at the next webinar. Thanks again. Thank you.